Well, City Light, it's a privilege to be here. I, I did serve on the advisory team, and uh, we, we no sooner got started with City Light South and COVID hit. So met, many of our meetings were on Zoom, so we didn't have the relational. I, I would say my experience with that, it was, it was, it was the smoothest and the gentlest I've ever been fired from a ministry. Uh, <laughs> We showed up here in the back, we were back in person again, and Gavin Johnson, Chris Ruska, and myself were handed a t-shirt and a gift and thanked for our service, and that was the end of our ministry. So <laughs> anyway, two years later, it's back. To, it's good to be back with you. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, chapter 4, verse 17 of Matthew. And with these words, the Lord reignited the dormant longings of many generations. Their Old Testament hopes for a righteous king who would reign over a righteous kingdom and rule sovereignly over the entire world had been crushed time and again by the invasion of foreign powers. Even on this day, the heavy boot of the Roman Caesar was placed upon their throat almost in suffocation. But suddenly there arrived on the scene one who spoke words that they had desperately prayed to hear. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the time he had completed the decoration of his manifesto, that is the policies, practices, and principles of his reign, the public anticipation had risen to a fever pitch. When he completed his Sermon on the Mount, they simply stood in stunned silence. Chapter 7, verse 28 says, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like their scribes. And then he added to his incomparable words, his incomparable works. You've already looked at in Matthew, his personal touch when he cleansed a leper. Or his distant command to the centurion servant that he be made well. Demons fled when he commanded them such. Diseases lost their hold and their power. Storms were stilled simply because his voice rebuked the winds and the waves. A paralyzed man stands up, rolls up his mattress, and carries it home without even one hour of physical therapy recovery. A grieving father embraces his raised-from-the-dead 12-year-old daughter again. And more than once, blind eyes began again to see. The silenced tongues of the mute began to speak words again. And then finally, he issues this general call. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. By his words and his works, his kingly majesty has been affirmed over and over again. But then we come to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 serves as a hinge point in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. Suddenly, Jesus shifts from the public demonstration of his claim to authority and power, and he moves rather into private consultation he begins to focus his ministry primarily on those who already believe. 
in Matthew 13, and you've been here for a couple of weeks, so you understand, but there are some repeated themes, and uh, I like to use the uh, coma model of Bible study. Coma is not what happens when Alex begins to preach, but it's, it's basically, <laughs> the C stands for context, and the O stands for observation, the M stands for meaning, and the A for application. So we begin with some observations. The first thing we notice in chapter 13 is the repeated phrase, the kingdom of heaven. It appears, I think, 32 times in the whole gospel, but it appears 12 of those 32 times right here in our 13th chapter. Another one is the repeated use of the phrase, the son of man. It appears, I think, 31 times throughout Matthew's gospel. It has already appeared twice in the preceding context, but twice it appears right here in the 13th chapter. And then as was already read for us, all these things Jesus did, verse 34, he said nothing to them without a parable. This is to fulfill what was spoken of the prophets, and you'll find at least 21 times in Matthew that says that these were done in order to fulfill the prophets. So we come to this hinge. And notice how it shifts. In chapter 12, verse 46, it says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother, sister, and my mother. He clarifies those who are in and those who are out. And then notice there's kind of a, an inclusio. There, there's a bookend on the shelf. Chapter 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out from the house and sat by the sea. But then you drop over to verse 36 of chapter 13. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him. The significance of chapter 13 is, as you've already been taught by your pastors, is the emphasis on parables. The word parable appears, I think, at least 15 times in chapter 13. Now, the parable simply means to lay alongside or to cast alongside. So basically, a parable is, is taking two sticks and laying them side by side and to compare them and to contrast those. So notice that in this context, he talks about the parable. There's eight recorded in chapter 13. Alex and Ricky made sure that I got the most difficult of the three. And there are six of those that are introduced with the phrase, and the kingdom of heaven is like or can be compared to. So a parable is simply a familiar story, some illustration from the pedestrian life that people understand so that God can teach them things they don't understand. So he tells stories that are for them most familiar, though for us they are not. They are, they are short stories, pithy stories that are long in meaning. 
When you come to a parable, it's very much like reading the book of Proverbs. It's that, it's that moment as you're reading it that you have to stop. They're so short, you can just, you're doing your read through the Bible in a year kind of thing, and you can just steamroll through them. But parables aren't written that way. You have to stop, take your fingers, lace them behind your head. If your wife allows you to, cross your feet, put them on the coffee table, stare at the ceiling, and ask yourself, what does this mean? Now, the danger in interpreting a parable is that we make every little rock, stone, and detail speak to some spiritual truth, and they're not crafted that way. The, the, the parables are written as a general story that was understandable in the original to the first hearer, but the meaning of which is only discovered by revelation. In other words, parables were, as the disciples said, verse 10, they said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he said, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. So parables are crafted by Jesus, and he begins to use this communication model more frequently after this hinge text, chapter 13. Why? Because those who have chosen to reject him, and the rejection of Jesus is ramping up by the time you come to 13, we're way into his three and a half years of ministry. So it conceals truth from those who have chosen not to believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the come Redeemer of Israel. But it also, so it conceals for many, but for a few, it reveals truth. But it's revealed because they ask. Now, Ricky handled the easy one last week. Everybody stands in line wanting to talk about the parable of the four soils. The bottom line came to this, that the effectiveness of the gospel, the word that is received, the word of the kingdom, is determined by the condition of the heart that hears it, the condition of the soil. But it was both encouraging for those of you that are sharing Jesus with your friends and associates at school and at work to realize that only one out of four, 25%, actually received the word and produced fruit that evidences eternal salvation. Many receive it, but they never finish well or follow through. So he's encouraging the disciples who he is preparing to send out. He is encouraging them that as you go and you preach this message of the kingdom, don't anticipate that we will ever be the moral majority. Because the reality is that at least 75% of those, even if for a moment they've, they feign belief that the reality is that maybe 25% will endure to the end. That was probably not the most encouraging thing the disciples could have heard, and yet. Then come to the second parable. Jesus graciously interprets that one for them. And then he comes to the second parable, which is the one that was already read, starting in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping... His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So to understand, they understood this. That there, was a, there was a weed that was so similar in appearance to the wheat that until it was fully mature, you could never quite be certain. 
It was, a, it was an act of violation of a Roman law, in fact. The Roman law had a, a law that said that you cannot get revenge on your neighbor by going into his field and sowing this weed, this in there because it would choke out the, the, the roots of the good and the bad would be so intertwined that, that you, could not, you could not remove the weeds without destroying the good. And so they understood that what he did was a violation of Roman law and there was a penalty to be paid for that. So when the plants came up and they bore grain, when the weeds also appeared and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Did you buy that cheap stuff that was all mixed in? Or didn't you, weren't you selective? Well, it's his field, and it's his seed, and he's doing the sowing. So the fault here is not on the hired men. They didn't do the sowing. The master who owned the field and bought the seed did, but they recognized that something has gone afoul here. How then do it, does it have weeds? And he said, an enemy has done this. The law has been broken. Somebody seeking revenge has tried to destroy my crop. And so the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? Be careful to notice that he does not rebuke the servants for sleeping. They're not saying that yeah, you were not paying attention. You were supposed to guard the field. This wasn't supposed to happen. They are ready to work hard, and they're saying, you want us to go out and weed the field? As a youngster growing up, I can remember going to my grandfather's farm over by Fairbury, and uh, he had Milo, and he would give us all machetes, and we had to walk the fields and chop down the weeds that were growing, because if the, if the weeds took over, then the production of the Milo was reduced. They're saying, do you want us to go out and clean the weeds out of the field? But he said to them, no less in the gathering of the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Be careful about doing the right thing at the wrong time and in the wrong way. The damage to the good can be so great that it is not worth the removal of the bad. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first. It'll be evident by that time the fruit of the product indicates the reality or the genuineness of the product. It'll be evident at that time that these are weeds, cut them off, remove them. This is the good, cut it off and store it up. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. That's the first. And remember that the first audience to hear this, he's preaching to the general populace, the general public, but the target from chapter 13 forward is primarily the preparation of the hearts of the 12 who are going to go out with the good news of the kingdom and the gospel. They've already had one blow to their confidence. 75% of the people that receive your word are not going to produce fruit. Now he hits them with a second one. When you're going out, seeding the word of the gospel, the enemy is also going to be seeding a false word. And the fact is, is that the weeds amongst the real are going to reduce the production. The disciples are probably right now on the edge of total discouragement going, and this is not even worth it. And so he throws them a couple other parables. The first one, as he gives it, is the parable of the mustard seed. Notice verse 31. 
So he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds and all kinds of articles saying, well, Jesus just didn't understand. There are seeds smaller than a mustard seed. But for, for the common use of, of agriculture in their day, the mustard seed would have been the smallest one that they would have purchased and invested. And he plants it in his field, the smallest of the seeds. When it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Literally, they could take a small mustard seed plant it, and by the time of the end of the season, it would have grown anywhere from 10, 12, sometimes as much as 15 feet in height. When we used to actually garden in our backyard, I had weeds that did the same thing. <laughs> then he says that it becomes large enough so that the birds of the air can come and make their nest in its branches. Well, he throws this one out, and he doesn't explain it. This is one of those moments where the people on the shore that are listening to Jesus as he's teaching from the boat are saying, I have no idea what these paraboles are all about. He's just like athlete scalp. They're just going right over my head. And the disciples are leaning forward going, I'm sure this means something. We probably ought to understand it. But in a subtle way, the master is saying to them, those 75% of those who hear the good news and even those that enthusiastically in the moment receive it, ultimately reject it, don't be discouraged. And even though when good seed is sown and the enemy comes and sows weeds among it and there's a battle for survival, don't be discouraged. Because the principle is this. Even the little becomes much if God is in it. So the great growth of the kingdom is not going to be found in its uh, front headlines making news and its incredible loud performance. It's going to be small in the beginning, but relentless in its growth. Until ultimately, and you get the story from Ezekiel, you get it also from Daniel and others, ultimately, this small seed grows into a tree that is strong enough and big enough so that the birds will come, place their nest there. In other words, this kingdom that starts small will grow big enough so all will be blessed by it. They will find safety and security there. Be encouraged. It's not how big it is in the beginning, but it's what it becomes when God is finished. So he gives them a third one. Verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took, and she hid it in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So to those that are being sent out with the message of the gospel that so far have been discouraged by the fact that 75% are going to reject it and not produce fruit, and the enemy is going to come, and he's going to oppose it, and he's going to try to destroy what is done there, it's encouraged that it's just the little thing that when it's placed in the hands of God, it can become a great thing, and also just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
the, the picture here would be as that the housewife just pinched off a little dough from yesterday, saved it till the next day when she begins to bake the bread, and that was the basic essential of life. That was the standard. Everybody had to live by bread, and then she would use that as a starter, and so she would take the starter dough. It's like sourdough starter that gets passed from generation to generation, and, it, and she would place it in there, and, and slowly it would invade, it would pervasively take over the entire thing. I asked the question, uh, what is uh, three measures? And most people said it's about 144 cups of flour. Another said that it would produce enough bread to feed 100 to 150 people. All of that by just simply taking a pinch from yesterday's dough and placing it in to the new flour. Jesus is saying to the disciples, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. You see, the growth of the kingdom, the growth of the gospel, it's not flamboyant, it's not loud, it's not demonstrative, but it is irresistible and pervasive. So just be faithful, put the leaven of the truth in, and in the hands of God, over time, it will grow and expand. Then finally, he quotes this, again, trying to explain why parables, why 15 times is it mentioned in the text? And it's because uh, Asaph in Psalm 78 said, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. In other words, this is to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet, which is trying to remind them again 21 times in there that this thing that Jesus is doing is not a new creative thing. It is the plan of God from the ages past that he was ultimately going to send his son and his communication method was going to be one that would conceal truth from those who rejected him and reveal truth to those who loved him. And so finally, now it's time to get out of the boat, make his way through the crowd and go back into the house. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds. He went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. I, I thought that was interesting when I read that. I, I read it a couple of times. They don't say, explain to us the wheat and how it multiplies and grows. And they don't say, explain to us the mustard seed story and explain to us the pinch of dough that has a little leaven in it, but they're hung up on the weeds. Explain to us the weeds of the field. Now, just momentarily, there is, a, there is a Christian education framework or model that appears in the Gospels, and you don't have to put an extra quarter in the offering box for this one. Just, you can just take this with you. You see, the, the beauty is learning to handle parables well. Don't make them more than they are. And as you read them, be ready to lace your fingers behind your head and think deeply about what they are. Recognize that you have to interpret a parable, first of all, through the eyes and in the Jesus boots of those who walked with him then, not in our own culture and time. But there's this model for how Jesus ministers truth that goes through the Gospels. It's, I think it's a, it's a great four-level uh, Christian education model for every church. Notice that he begins with proclamation. He preaches to the masses. Out of that, there are some whose hearts are stirred to go, what does that mean? Most everybody's going, what does that mean? 
But only a few of them care enough to come to him and say, Lord, can you explain to me what it means? So you go from proclamation to interpretation. And then out of those that understand what it means, there's another level, and it gets even smaller at this point. And those who say, in light of what it means, what am I supposed to do? How is that supposed to change? What's the so what? It's called application. And then finally, just a handful make it to the fourth level, which is imitation. I want to be like you. From proclamation to interpretation to application to imitation. And you'll see that flowing through the gospel of Matthew. The disciples have made it to step two. Lord, can you explain to us what the parable of the weeds of the field And he said, and now he gives them the formula to unpack it. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The son of man. That takes us back to Daniel chapter 7. If you have your Bible available, you might want to flip back to Daniel in the 7th chapter. Because if he's going to refer to the son of man 31 times in the gospel, we probably ought to know who that is. Daniel says in verse 13 of Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, there was in the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not pass be destroyed. Over in verse 27, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions will serve and obey him. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Speaks Jesus' favorite title for himself. Speaks of his humanity. Speaks of his humility, but it also speaks of his destiny. In the moment, they have seen him, they have seen the works that he's done, they have heard the words that he's spoken, but they've given him the Heisman over and over. They've rejected, but that doesn't matter. God himself in the Son of God, Jesus, is the one that's planting good seed. The seed that he's planted is in the field, which is the world. In the last parable, we thought about the the field as being the souls and the hearts of man. In this case, it's the world, and the good seed that is planted is the sons of the kingdom. In the last parable, the good seed that was planted was the words of the kingdom, the gospel. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and those who do the reaping are the angels, the servants of God. So now he gives them the meaning. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And he will throw them into the fiery furnace that in that place there will be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Now his concluding statement 
gives us the thread that laces chapter 13 together. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. So in our observation, we notice that he has talked about hearing over and over in the chapter. 13.9, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. In 13.13, he said, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Verse 13, or 16 of chapter 13 says, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. In verse 17 of chapter 13, he said, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. They did not see it. They long to hear what you hear but they did not hear it. In verse 18, he said, hear then the parable of the sower. In verse 19, he said, anyone who hears the word of the kingdom. In verse 20, 22, 23, he says it over and over. This is the one who hears the word. And he wraps it up in verse 43 of 13. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which raises the question, with the master teacher who is affirming his message with incomparable works, miracles, and power, why is it that they don't see? And why do they not hear? Deuteronomy 29.4 says, This day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21, it says, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Thirty years after this, the Apostle Paul will write this letter from a prison cell in Rome in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. He will say this, They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul will say, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why is it that they see and don't see, they hear and they don't hear? It's an issue of the heart. And Satan is seeding the weeds to destroy the works of the gospel, and he chooses to blind them so they don't understand. And so the sower, who is the son of man, sows the field, which is the world, with good seed, which is the sons of the kingdom, amongst which are the weeds, who are the sons of the evil one, or as Jesus said in John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil, and the enemy is actively at work there, and the harvest at the end of the age is the ultimate day of judgment, where God himself knows who are truly followers of his, and those who are not, as when you were in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, he will say, many said to me in that day, didn't we not heal in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. At the end of the age, those who are real become evident and those who are not also. 
the angels are the ones that do the reaping. So the final principle on parables is this. You have not rightly interpreted a parable until you experience the aha. Buried somewhere in this pithy little story is a truth that is only discovered through meditation, prayer, and divine revelation. My aha, I was sitting in a hotel in Chicago this week at a missions board meeting unpacking this, and I, many of the authors and, and myself included thought that the parable was speaking about the church and that we need to be on the alert, that we, we should not be sleeping on the job because the church is being gathered full of saints and Satan is going to plant false believers among us so that we look skeptically and critically at everybody seated around us. Are they in or are they out? Are they one of us or are they not? But this parable is not about the church and Satan putting false professors among us. Instead, it's not the world coming into the church, but the parable is the church going into the world. In order for him to rule and to reign in righteousness, God has determined that he will take us, the sons of the kingdom, the children of righteousness, and he will sovereignly seed us into the world around us in order that in our being light in their darkness, many of them might come to know Jesus. One author put it this way, it is eschatological anticipation, not ecclesiastical deterioration. I only threw that in so you would think I was smarter. No, no, no. Take away lessons for first hearers. You have to ask yourself, what, what did the first hearers take away? And then we'll know what God wants us the first thing that they, he wanted the disciples to understand, that is when God does a great work, opposition is certain to come. Whenever God initiates a great work, difficult times will come. It's a biblical truth. Satan will not rest. He is relentless in seeking to destroy what God has done. The second truth True belief grows undeniably evident over time. The seeds in the four soils, how do we know which ones are genuine? They bear fruit over the long haul. In this one, how do we know which are the tares and which are the real fruit, the wheat? Time will tell. How do I know if my profession of faith is legitimate? those who endure to the end who are saved. True belief grows undeniably evident over time. So you ask yourself the question, do I look more like Jesus today than I did a year ago? Is there, is there growth and development and maturing taking place in me? Is it, do those who know me best see more of Christ in me and less of Tom? in me. The third principle comes out of the mustard seed. Little is much if God is in it. 
little as much. We, we always think that if it's a God thing, it is flamboyant and it's loud and it's explosive. We have the Elijah thing. I look for him in the lightning and the thunder and the earthquake. But I heard his voice in the gentle breeze. Little as much if God is in it. And the fourth, we are called of God to live in the world while not being of the world. John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying, he says, Father, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but I ask that you keep them from the evil one. So to apply this to us personally, if we take, we've heard already in the Gospel of Matthew, number one, it's time that we drop the shade off of our lamp. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works. He is placing you in the world as a light in the darkness. And the darker your assignment, the more brightly your little light shines. But it's time, by God's design, that you drop your shade. It's also time to get the salt out of the shaker. You see, salt in the shaker doesn't do anything. The reason for salt, and you are the salt of the earth, is that he, he rubs us in to the environment to, de to delay or to slow down the decaying process. We, we can't say the mission of the church and the mission of the gospel is not to make the world a better place. It, it's to point to Christ who alone can make a better person. But while we're here, we are to make a difference. And so we, to do that, we, we can't run and hide. We can't go into isolation, separatism. Instead, we serve the Lord right where we are, and we have to take the risk of getting out of the shaker and finding ourselves in contact with the culture that is so rapidly deteriorating around us. It's our job to focus less on exegeting our culture and more about evangelism, lost souls. Or to be less critical of what's happening around us and more compassionate toward those for this simple reason. There is coming a day when his angels will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and he will throw them into a fiery furnace in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The parables are significant because there is a forever heaven and there is a forever hell. And there is between those two a great chasm fixed which cannot be crossed on the other side of the grave. He has sent us out there with the good news, not to judge and to criticize, but to compassionately and lovingly speak truth knowing that maybe 25% of the people that we talk to have a heart that's been prepared by God to hear and receive, and they will come to know him. You may complain about where you live or where you work or where you go to school, but according to this parable, you have been planted in your place for this time for divine purposes. So grow where you're planted. Drop the shade, get out of the shaker, and make a difference through compassionate, loving care for the glory of Christ. With this final conclusion, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. The good news is we've read the end of the book and we win.
It's dark today, but there is coming a day when those who know Jesus will be seen as a brilliant light for his glory. Right now, we just need to be faithful where we've planted. Lord, I thank you that you love us enough to speak to us and you reveal truth to us and you make it practical and real so that you can use us in the world where you've placed us. You, you've intentionally seeded us in the world and Satan is opposing that and there's a battle taking place. But you encourage our hearts knowing that it's in the little things that big things take place. So give us courage, just be little and be faithful. Looking forward to the day when we win, when Jesus returns and you separate those who have faithfully walked with you from those who have denied you and rejected you. But until then, stir our hearts for the lost. It's a serious and an urgent message that there is coming a day when a forever hell will receive those who have rejected Christ. You have rescued us in order to let them know they don't have to go there. By your grace, there might be somebody here this morning, Lord, who, who is just playing the game. And uh, the Spirit of God is stirring their heart. Would you be so gracious as to give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand? Pray in Jesus' name.